0: If you will take your Bibles, turn with me to the second book of Peter. Old Te- New Testament. Revelation is the last book. Jude comes before Revelation, then you have first and second and third John, and right before that is the book of Second Peter. Second Peter. Who wrote the book of Second Peter? Can anybody tell me? Who wrote the book of Second Peter? Shout it out. Peter. And uh, was Peter a, um, a pretty important personality in the Bible? Yes, he was. How closely did he know the Lord? Very much so. I think he was like the first disciple. <laughs> a truly disciple. And uh, he uh, his life was transformed. He was a guy who was... Uh, who was um, impetuous and spoke before he thought. He was a guy who needed the grace of the Lord in his life. Um, He was the one who betrayed Jesus, um, denied him um, a real, you know, and the Lord Lord said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And the Lord said, Peter, if it weren't for me watching over you and taking care of you and praying for you, uh, you wouldn't survive this. But the Lord said to Peter, Peter, you're going to be okay. And so what does he do? What does he do in his books? When he writes First and Second Peter's, he remembers all of these experiences that he had with the Lord. And he is one of those who can look back on it and say, I'm not what I was before. I'm a whole lot better. My life has changed. I have grown over the years. And that is why I want to say to you that if you want a summary, the best summary I can give you of the book of 2 Peter is actually what Peter says in chapter 3, verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, and 18. Let's look at this summary before we give you a couple of things about the book that are going to be helpful for you. Peter says, therefore, so we know he has a lot to say. Beloved, he's talking to believers, looking forward to these things. He explains the things he wants us to be looking forward to. He wants us to be looking forward to the judgment of unbelievers, He wants us to be looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. He wants us to be looking forward to a great future that God has promised for all of us. But he wants us to be diligent to be found in him in peace because it's possible for us not to be diligent and to be found in him in turmoil. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but we have a wonderful illustration of this in the book. But not having peace. He wants us to be diligent to be found in him, that is in Christ, without spot and blameless. Not with a life that's dirty, not with a life that's been uh, corrupted. And he explains that in 2 Peter as well. And he wants us to consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. He can identify with Paul the apostle as well. As also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which, and hopefully you don't stand in this category, You're not untaught, hopefully. You're not unstable, hopefully. Because untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction the word of God. And the result is shipwrecked, as Paul had mentioned. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Verse 18, everybody together. Let's read it. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So you wonder why I titled the sermon, Grow or Else. I titled that because after reading 2 Peter time and time and time and time again, it dawned on me that, you know, you can't, you can't remain stagnant in your Christian life. There's, there's no such thing as being stagnant. You're either going to be move, moving forward, you're either going to be growing, or you're going to be sucked into all of the pressures of the world around us. How If you sit in a stagnant pond, you're going you're gonna to start to stink. Let's just put it that way. You see, it's important for us to understand why this book is so serious for our generation. Now, go back to the first. There's only three chapters in this book. Only three chapters. This is very easy to read. It's got a lot of interesting stuff in it. Peter refers to about a dozen historical events in this book. He he talks about the transfiguration of Christ. That's exciting. He talks about Noah's flood. That's exciting. He talks about the destructions of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's exciting. And he goes through a lot of historical things that happened in the Bible to all prove his point. Now, let's see if we can get a sense of this. And I it was tough for me to figure out how to do this. So, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go through the, go through the the three chapters in a very brief way. Let me show you what I mean. So, Simon Peter, in beginning in chapter one, says that he is writing to those who have obtained like precious faith. Verse 1. Do you see that? He's writing to those who have tamed like precious faith with us. Your faith is as valuable as my faith. Your faith is the same kind of faith mine is. Because you know there's all kinds of faith out there. There's dead faith. There's living faith. There's weak faith. There's strong faith. There's saving faith. There's faith in in, in numerous things. But but Peter says your faith is like my faith. And then I want you to jump down to verse... uh, Verse 4, at the end of the verse, because of our precious faith, we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But I want to remind you that as you read through the book of 2 Peter, you're going to discover that even though you and I have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, That does not prevent, verse 22 of chapter 2, a dog returning to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. You say, boy, Gary, are you you talking about people who were once saved that can lose their salvation? No? No? No, I'm talking about people who have been rescued from the corruption that is in the world through lust and then being caught up in it once again. Now, you can put two and two together because you know where you are. But Peter says, you know, you and I need to be very, very careful because even though these things have happened to us, we can become, look at verse 8, we can become useless We can become unfruitful. We can, in verse 9, become short-sighted, even the blindness. And we can do it because we have forgotten God to the point where we stumble and fall. In verse 10. So you can see now why Peter says, since that's the case... You and I need to, verse 10, be even more diligent to make our calling and election sure. If you're saved, prove it. You've been called. You've been elected. Now, prove it. You're not going to prove it if you are barren or unfruitful or short-sighted or you stumble or you become entangled once again with the corruption that is in the world through lust. You can't prove you're saved if all we can do is look at you and say, you know what, I don't know. And so P- Peter is extremely important. about. He's in, he's very. He makes that a very important thing for us to consider in every chapter of this book. So, he talks about the church's responsibility in verses 12 and following. Notice how he states it. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you I need to remind you. He represents the church, of course. He represents the apostles. He represents those who teach the word of God, who preach the word of God, who share the word of God. And he says, our job is to remind, remind, remind. He says it three times. In verse 15, he ends by saying, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I don't like reminders. How about you? A lot of times I do, but there are sometimes I don't like reminders, and the Apostle Peter is saying, that the responsibility of the church—you come in here every Sunday morning—and we do what? We remind you every Sunday morning. We remind you of the goodness of the Lord. We remind you of the faithfulness of the Lord. We remind you of our responsibilities to love Him and to serve Him. Uh, much of the Christian life, and and, and Peter, Peter says. Chapter 3, verse 1, when he gives you the purpose of this letter, he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of everybody together, a reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and by the apostles in this day and age. Why does he say that? Now, you ever get tired of anything? You do it so many times. You get tar- Some people get tired of church. They do it so many times. They sing the same hymn so many times. They get tired of it. They get tired of it. They get tired of it. And they say, oh, I don't think I'm going to bother with church today. They're just going to sing a song I've sung 10 million times. I don't need to be reminded of that. Peter says, yes, you and I do need to be reminded. He has nothing new to say. He is reminding us of what the word of God teaches so that we won't become useless and unfruitful and short-sightedness and stumble and fall. Notice how he describes the growing process in verse 5 of chapter 1. You know, you and I have a like faith. We're trusting Christ. We believe in God. But he says that you and I are to give all diligence to add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness. Take a look at those those words, there's a whole bunch of them in the next two in the in the two verses here following, what Peter says in verse four about escaping corruption, corruption, and about being diligent. If you and I do not add diligence, a lot, it's like you know, I I've trusted Christ, and I'm okay now. I don't have to do a thing. Uh, I can just sit around and just bask in the fact that I'm trusting Christ. Uh, Peter says, no. No. If that happens to you, you're going to find out that the world is going to exploit you. False teachers are going to lure you astray. You're going to be carried away by the lusts of this world. You're going to be affected by the sensuality of of uh, And he wraps it all up in false teachers in chapter 2 and following. Because he says to us, here's what they do to you. Chapter 2, verses 1 and following. For instance, there were false teachers. There always will be false teachers. There will always be people who will try to convince you that the way of truth is the wrong way. There are always people who are going to try to convince you that trusting Christ is... Is a bad thing to do. That adhering to the word of God is just ludicrous. And notice what he says that these false teachers will do to you in chapter two. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Verse three, by covetous they will exploit you with deceptive words. Uh, verse ten. They walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise authority. They are presumptuous self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Verse 12. They speak evil of the things they do not understand. Verse 13 of chapter 2. They it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Because you and know, I can't you know, we're rubbing shoulders with unbelief and unbelievers all the time. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetous practices. 15, they forsake the right way and go astray. Verse 18, they speak great swelling words of emptiness. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Boy, you're you're, you're either sitting here today probably saying, boy, I'm glad I have escaped and I am out of all of that, that sin and wickedness that I was involved in before I was saved. And I'm glad that I still have been rescued. and uh, But there may be some who say, or you know some, who will say, you know what? That person looks to me like they've been entangled once again. They, have, they, they escaped, but now they've been captured once again. And they are under all of these exploitations of uh, false teachers and people and Satan who want them to not trust God and to live a life in this world that suits the sensual mind. All right? So that's why Peter says at the end, he says, listen, untaught and unstable people uh, will be destroyed. They'll be led away with the error of the wicked. But in order for that not to happen, either grow or else grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or that is bound to happen. That is what Peter really is telling us in these three chapters. That is bound to happen if you and I are not diligent in adding to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love, as he outlines it for us in chapter one. Now, I will say this: We have a perfect example of this happening in the book of 2 Peter, because if you'll look at chapter two, verse six and following, you'll discover that after he gives to us the historical event of the angels being cast into outer darkness. In the ancient world being being flooded during Noah's day, he says in verse 6 that he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. But he delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. If there's ever a guy in the Bible who was saved, and yet he was about as close to not being saved as you can get, it's probably the book of Lot. It's probably, the, it's probably Lot. Uh, I think John Rice many years ago wrote a book he called The Ruin of a Christian, and he used Lot as an example. But here's the point. Lot's life was miserable, in verse 8, because this righteous man dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. But listen, he caroused around with them. He lived in their city. He worked with them. He didn't give any impression whatsoever that he was escaping from the culture of that day by living a separated life. He doesn't give us much illustration of that. And because of that, he is a candidate for being unstable and useless and unfruitful. In some ways, he was. He couldn't even influence his family to get out of the city when the time came. But having said that, Bible says in verse 9 of that very same chapter that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And on the other hand, reserve the unjust. He divides everything into two. He puts the wicked on one side, the righteous on the other. He says, listen, if, if, if there's danger of you getting involved in the world and being captured once again and entangled once again, and becoming unprofitable and all of that. I want you to know that God can bring you out of that. It's not a hopeless situation. God knows how to do that. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 9, he says to those of us who are believers. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, all of us. Not willing that any of us should perish, but repent of our sin and come to him now i'm going to close this with the third chapter if you read the book of second peter in these three chapters what's going to pop out constantly is this division between the righteous and the wicked the righteous are growing the wicked are not and if you are a righteous person and you're not growing We'll ultimately be able to identify you with those who are the wicked. Prove that you don't belong in that category. That's what Peter says. Prove it. Because in every situation that he describes, every situation, I don't know that there's an exception in this book, every time he gives a characteristic of the unbeliever and the unrighteous, he says, listen, he says, they are reserved under punishment for the day of judgment. He says they'll utterly perish in their corruption. He says uh, they, they will be reserved. The blackness of darkness is reserved for them forever. They will experience the day of the Lord. He, every time, practically every time he refers to a false teacher or a, or a preacher or a person who does not accept the word of God, he says, "Listen, I want you to know this is what it looks like for you, and the end of the road for you is judgment." Now, so Peter writes, and I want to—I want to try uh, to—I want to try to make sure that I have this done in ten minutes. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, and both of which to stir up your pure minds by way of a reminder that you will be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And in order for you to be mindful, you know, he's reminding them, he's reminding them, constantly reminding them to, to grow and to diligently Make their calling and election sure. Prove that you don't belong in that group that's going to end up in judgment on the day of the Lord. He says, so be mindful of everything that I said. The best way I know is to make sure that you as a believer spend time with the Lord every single day of your life. That you're reading God's word, that you're praying, that you're in touch with the Lord, that you're doing it with the idea that I'm going to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And then also I would say, make sure that you're attending church as often as you have the opportunity to do so. You'll remember that the apostle says, as the days approach, the final days, we need to make sure we're assembling ourselves together together, because have you ever, you go you go camping, you know what this is like. When you're trying to put out a fire and you have a bunch of coals there, you spread them all out so they're not touching each other and they'll all go out more quickly. But if you keep all those coals together, the mutual heat from all of those coals together keep that fire warm and hot. Well... By forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, it's like taking yourself out of that and putting yourself on the side so that you can cool off. Not in a good way, but in a bad way, of course. But I want you to see this as we close. Uh, My goal this morning was merely to give you an overview of 2 Peter so that you would have your appetite wet to make sure you read and study these three chapters. So he says, be mindful of these words. And then in verse 3, he says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, everybody together in verse 4, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation." Verse 5, for this they willingly forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water, creation, and in the water. Verse 6, by which the world that then existed perished, the flood being flooded with water. And then verse 7, another event coming down the road, but the heavens and the earth, which are now reserved for the same word, preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, you and I have seen, our kids have seen, my parents have seen, this enormous push to force God out of our culture more so than ever before in the history of the world through the theory of evolution back in the 1800s by Charles Darwin. Darwin. We've seen that. We've seen that. And this is what he's talking about. He's saying in the last days, scoffers are going to come and they're going to say, Jesus isn't coming back. It's been, what, 100 years, 200 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years. There's nothing true about the second coming of Christ. Everything has continued as they were from the beginning of creation. It's called uniformitarianism in the science community and the Bible says in verse 5 that they willingly forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old God created the world God flooded the world and God is going to give us a new heaven and a new earth as he says later on in this chapter now think about this for a minute This philosophy drives almost everything else that is happening in the first two chapters. There's no God that we're accountable to. There's no creation. Everything is here because of evolution. We it's been all been around for thousands of years, and millions of years, and billions of years, and billions of years. And, of years. and it's because of the theory of evolution and the rejection. Of the first eleven chapters of Genesis, with Noah's flood, that we can probably trace all this other stuff. How many know that's true? We've seen it. We've seen it happen. Now, I, I want to. I, I have a video I want you to see here for a minute because. This is, the, this is the science year, yearbook for world book in 2012. When, when little kids, when kids come to me and they ask me, is there a Santa Claus? Do you know what I do? I say, check it out in world book. After all, that's the encyclopedia that's in your school. Check it out in world book. Did you ever check it out in world book? When I, uh, I, this, this is considered to be one of the most knowledgeable reference works that is constantly printed for this new generation that keeps coming up. But in the yearbook, in this yearbook that came out in 2013, there was a special report called Prehistoric Mega Floods. Science has been so bombarded with the idea that canyons are created quickly by catastrophic events that they finally conceded to admit that's true. This is, it. I'm, this is, this is science year 2013. And so the whole article is about sudden cataclysmic mega floods have dramatically reshaped parts of Earth's surface. The canyon-making process. Now, they will not admit, they will not admit that there was one big Genesis flood, but what they do admit that (laughs) all over the world there have been mega-floods that have changed the environment everywhere. And they're finally... I, I was a breath of fresh air to hear them finally say that in a special report because they're giving it to us like it's new news, like it's new. Now, you know the scientific method is we come up with a hypothesis and then we check it out and check it out and check it out and check it out and and we experiment and we experiment and we experiment until we can conclude the rightness or the wrongness of that hypothesis, right? Nobody was here during creation so nobody can test that hypothesis that the evolutionist gives us. So it's like God saying, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you an experiment in your age that's going to prove what I tell you about the flood of Noah's day. Um, all right. There's a lot more can be said about that, but I think I'm going I'm to stop right there and let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you, Lord, for using Peter to write these three chapters to us in his second book. Lord, help us to realize the value of being reminded over and over and over and over again. Help us to realize that we cannot be stagnant but Father we need to grow or else we'll be captured once again into the pressure of the world around us. We ask in your precious name that you would remind us of what it was like for us to have escaped the corruption in the world. That you remind us of what the future is like and to continue to read the book of second peter and and to really saturate our thinking with the wonderful historical event yet to take place in your recreation of this world and the heavens in a new heavens and a new earth in jesus your name we pray amen